Some of you may listen or read uh, the works of uh, Dennis Prager. And whether you agree completely with him or not, there's one thing I admire him for, and it was a statement that he made. It was in a debate a number of years ago with the Oxford atheist professor and philosopher uh, Jonathan Glover. And Prager raised an interesting question. He said this, If you, Professor Glover, were stranded at the midnight hour in a desolate Los Angeles street, and if, as you stepped out of your car with fear and trembling, you were suddenly to hear the weight of pounding footsteps behind you, and you saw ten burly young men who had just stepped out of a dwelling coming toward you, would it or would it not make a difference to you to know that they were coming from a Bible study? Well, obviously, the answer to that question is yes, it would make a difference Why is that the obvious answer? Well, the assumption most make at the very basic and general level is that those coming out of a Bible study, whether you agree or disagree, but but most would say that if you're coming out of a Bible study, at some level you're trying to improve your life, you're trying to seek after God, and we would instinctively believe that that ought to make a difference in conduct. Even unbelievers think that, that if you're a Christian, you ought to be what kind of a Christian? A good Christian. That's what they think. One group of scholars came to this conclusion about the Bible. They said, quote, the Bible's value above all is as a guide to lives. And when we mean lives, we mean all of our lives, whether one is religious or not, whether one is Christian, Jewish, or from another religion or no religion. That's very interesting because this is a positive statement made about the Bible by those who, by virtue of the fact that they say it is just at best a moral guide for everyone, don't actually know or believe the central message of the Bible. And so there's still this instinctive idea that the Bible has something positive for us, even if they don't get it right. So why does the Bible make a difference? Why would it make a difference to know someone was coming from a Bible study? What is the central message of the Bible? And that's what we want to look at this evening as we're embarking on the second of five introductory messages to help us understand the Pentateuch, the Torah. What we're going to find is that if we understand the central message of the Pentateuch, we understand the central message of the entire Bible because it's the same. And so tonight I want to examine what I've entitled the theological center of the Pentateuch. Now, I know that sounds more like a lecture title than a sermon title, so let me give you some alternative titles if that will help you feel a little bit better. You could say that this is how to know what the Bible says and feel great about it. That's true also. We could call this how to find God's will for your life in the Bible. That's true also. My favorite is how to put the logical back into theological. We could do that tonight. All of those would accurately describe what I hope that we'll accomplish tonight will be the outcome of our time together Now, before we get rolling, I want to just remind us from last time some of the challenges that we have together in looking at the Pentateuch together. Some of those challenges include taking very large sections and trying to explain them meaningfully in 50 to 60 minutes. We have the challenge of drawing accurate and meaningful conclusions as new covenant believers about old covenant scripture, old covenant texts. We have the challenge of showing the continuity and the consistency of God's plan, that, that there is a continuity all the way from Genesis to Revelation. There is a consistency in his, his scheme. We have the challenge of engaging our minds to dig deeply and to think hard at a deep level. On a Sunday evening, last week I recommended naps and coffee. I've had both of those today, so we're good. 
We have the challenge of not always having just one text to look at, particularly in this introduction series. So we have to work a little harder. So I'm encouraging you to commit to this larger chunk of information. And before I embarked on this, I had to decide I believe in the Lord and I believe in you. And we're going to do this together and work through this together. Now, I'll set our direction for tonight in just a moment. But to just get some reminder thoughts going here, some some mental notes to get your juices going, I want to just remind you of a couple of things. Where does the word Pentateuch come from? Well, basically, it refers to the size of the work. It originally referred to the fact that it took five scrolls, thus the name Penta, to contain the Pentateuch. A more accurate and helpful term to use in the Jewish tradition is Torah. It just means instruction or law. Dr. Eugene Merrill wrote that the purpose of the Torah, quote, was to educate Israel regarding the general meaning of creation and history and regarding its specific function within that cosmic framework. In other words, it answered questions for Israel. Where did people originate? Where did this people originate? Why were they called by Yahweh? What is the meaning of the covenant of God? What were God's requirements for his redeemed people? What were and are the purposes for Israel as regards the future in the nations of the world? And so to help us start closing in on some of those answers about Israel, we have to include how Israel fits into the overall message of the Bible, the the overarching plan. So to set our direction tonight, I'm just going to give you a single statement, a, a proposition, if you will, to guide our thoughts, and then we'll break down the three segments of that statement. So let me give you the whole statement first. This is everything we're going to do tonight. Here's our, our proposition, and that is that God has a central directive through a specific pathway, and he confirms this central dire- directive elsewhere in Scripture. Let me repeat that, and I'll give it to you in pieces later. God has a central directive through a specific pathway and he confirms this central directive elsewhere in scripture. So let's break this down into into its three parts. The first phrase, God has a central directive, a central order, a central command to mankind which really tells us his purpose for all of human history. And so the best place to begin here, obviously, is Genesis 1. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And this is, of course, the account of creation. But the way the, the way the Holy Spirit arranged the information is extremely important because creation ultimately involves two main characters, right? We have the creator and the created. Those are the two main characters. So the creation account is actually given twice from both of those perspectives. And I'll explain the significance of that in a moment. But basically, generally speaking, Genesis 1-1 through chapter 2, verse 3 or 4, 4 is probably a a transitional verse, but Genesis 1-1 through chapter 2, verse 3 is the creation account from God's perspective. It's the the high perspective. And then from Genesis 2, verse 5, the creation account is given from man's perspective. Let me put this in terms we can all understand. The first account is the viewpoint from the parents looking into the crib of the new baby. And the second account is the view from inside the crib what the baby is seeing. And it's the same thing, just from two perspectives. The first account from God's perspective, the the view from outside the crib, as it were. This is the foundation of all things, which presupposes and assumes the existence of God and the power that he has to create all things from nothing. And of course, we see this in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is something that 
mankind never saw. This is from God's perspective. He never saw that announcement. He never saw the creation of light, the creation of daytime and nighttime, atmosphere, dry land, seas, the beginning of plant life, the beginning of animal life, the creation of the light givers, that sun, the moon, and the stars. Mankind never saw this. He, he never heard or saw the decree of God in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He, he didn't see that. This is God's perspective. Now, the beginning of chapter 2 summarizes this first account of creation. Chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So that's the first account. But then you get the second account from mankind's perspective, the view from inside the crib, so to speak. And now the focus and the pinnacle of creation comes to the forefront immediately. Chapter 2, verse 5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Immediately now the reference is the man, the, the, the human being. And it continues in verse 6, And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man, there he is again, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So this this is the divine photograph of the day that Adam was born. Born as a full adult with language and knowledge and skills, of course. And by the way, the question is, did Adam have a belly button? Yes, he did. Uh, why? Because he was created with the appearance of age, and so that's, that's not a problem. Then we get a look around inside the crib. That's a pretty nice crib. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone is there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Those are some nice touches. Fancy crib, rivers, you have nations, you have precious stones. There's some good stuff going on here. And then, of course, we get the account of the creation of Eve, a a wife for Adam through whom the human race would multiply, and we have the mandate of God-ordained marriage between the man and the woman. So significant space is devoted to to the creation account here from these two different perspectives, and this is vital to help us understand what the central directive of Scripture is. I haven't told you what it is yet, so don't panic if you're trying to wonder what it is. Now, to get us closer to the central directive, we have to talk about the theological center or the purpose of a book. And in almost every case, the theological center or the purpose of a Bible book isn't found at the beginning. Let me give you some examples. The purpose of the Gospel of John is found near the end. John twenty thirty one. but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you have life. The purpose of the book of Exodus is found all the way in Exodus 20, verse 2. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's what Exodus is about. The purpose of Ecclesiastes is found at the very end, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, this is what theologians call the canonical center of a book. It refers to the idea of the canon being the recognized books of the Bible and that each part of the, the canon, as it were, the Bible has a purpose statement. So I'm, I'm telling you that big term canonical center for, for a reason. That being said, the beginning of every Bible book is also significant. If it doesn't have the, the theological center at the beginning, it doesn't mean that the beginning isn't important. It's also very intentional. The same three books that I cited for you, listen to the beginning of each of them and see if you don't think this is significant. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, was with God, and the Word was God. This is the deity of Christ in verse 1. That's a, that's a pretty important beginning, I would think. Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. That's important because it's setting up the eventual problem of slavery, which Exodus solves. And then you have Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and 2, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's meant to make you go, oh no, I need to find out what to do about this. And that's what theologians sometimes call the historiographic center of the book, what the Holy Spirit chooses to say first. I don't know why they have to big, use a big word, it's just to make them sound smart, I guess. But that's the historiographic center of the book. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because for what I believe the only time in our whole Bible, in this rare instance, the canonical center of the Pentateuch and the historiographic center of the Pentateuch are the same thing. It's all together. In other words, the creation is the priority of the Pentateuch. This is what it's about. The first part of the account of creation is from God's perspective, and this climaxes with the, the, the crowning glory of God's creation, the creation of mankind. We see creation from his perspective. And you might say, okay, great, but just the act of creation is not self-explanatory. Do, do we have this entire account of creation just so we can argue with evolutionists? Is that why it's here? No. There must be an explanation of the motive and the meaning. In other words, the major question we should get out of the creation account is, so what? What's the point? Who cares? Well, it doesn't take long to get to those answers. After creating light, God said that it was good. Chapter 1, verse 4. Same thing with the dry land, the plant life, the placement of the heavenly lights, the creation of sea life and of air life and earthly creatures. It was all good. And then at the end of Genesis 1, we get a summary. Look with me at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now that statement that these things were good, this is a statement of purpose. But listen, the statement that these things were good doesn't just mean that they were aesthetically pleasing. I remember being a child and being taught in Sunday school that the trees were good because they're pretty and the sky was good because it's blue and the birds were good because they sing. And that's true to a certain degree, but it goes beyond aesthetic 
uh, an aesthetic uh, pleasing nature. It means that they are the basis upon which God will build his eternal divine purposes. In other words, the set has been built, but the set of the, the play, as it were, isn't the point. And so we have to go even deeper into this theological center. Creation is the central feature of the theology of Genesis and the Pentateuch, and the creation of mankind is the central feature of the central feature. Don't worry, I still haven't told you what the central directive is if you're trying to figure it out, but we're closing in on it. But as we get close, now we we see the setup for the central directive. Look at Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, now we're starting to get close. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God makes mankind in his image with gender distinction. And we're going to see that this is intimately connected with the purpose of God for mankind for all of redemptive history, which, by the way, means that trying to blur gender distinctions is a direct assault on the purposes of God for all of mankind. So we would undermine this by blurring those distinctions, which shows, by the way, that Satan knows the purpose of mankind from the Bible. And so he's trying to undermine that. Now, the idea that we're created in the image of God, we we can come at this from a lot of different possible angles. Some emphasize the relational similarities that God feels and we feel and so forth. Others offer moral similarities that God has a sense of right and wrong and we have a sense of right and wrong. And still others offer functional similarities that God is a creator and we are creative. But there's a definite nuance that we should note here. And I think this is really the the key to the whole thing. There's good evidence that when the text says that we are created, that God created in our image, it's, it's a plural form here, after our likeness, that it can and should be translated as our image, according to our likeness. Now, why is that important? It's, mankind is not just in the image of God. He is the image of God. He is as the image of God, meaning that it speaks not just of what mankind is, but what he is to be, what he is to do. He is a representative, which implies actions and and functions. Let me put it this way. Officially, when the vice president of the United States makes an appearance someplace, the president has been there. Does that make sense? When the vice president is there, the president is there. The vice president is the appointed representative, and when you see him, you see the president. And so given the fact that mankind is made as the image of God, as the representative of God on earth, now we can grasp the point of creation, the point of the Pentateuch, the point of the whole Bible, what I've called the central directive. And here it is, chapter 1, verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Another mandate follows in verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And there it is again, dominion and dominion. In verse 26, 
When the word dominion is used, it's a Hebrew form, verb form, which indicates a wish or a decree. In other words, may they have dominion. It's like a, it's like a toast at a wedding reception. May you have happiness. May you have dominion. But the second time in verse 28, it's an imperative form. It's a command. You will have dominion. And then the, the command to subdue the earth in verse 28, that also is a command. Now, this is really important. These words dominion and subdue. They're two different Hebrew verbs. They can both be traced, though, down to the same basic meaning. And the basic meaning of have dominion and subdue is to tread upon, to tread down. I'm going to put it this way, to put something under your feet, to tread upon this. This will become very important later. In other words, mankind is to govern and to lead in a way which demonstrates his lordship and his dominion over all of creation. And we can see this. To the animals, mankind is godlike in some way. That what, when the animals see mankind, in a certain sense, they see God. And in fact, one of the results of the curse of sin is a distance between animals and mankind now. Not only do we eat them, by the permission of God, this wasn't the case until after the flood, but God also decreed a fear of mankind in the animal kingdom. Genesis 9, 2 and 3 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered and every moving thing that lives shall be food for you as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. I think that eating another creature tends to put emotional distance between you and that creature. So things are not as they always were and as they will be. But even now, we still get glimpses of God's original created order, one which the Bible says will return, by the way, when the lion lies down with the lamb. Just this week, I saw a video that moved me to tears because in it, I, I saw God's created, intended created order as it should be. It was a, a young woman coming up to a, an enclosure at, at some sort of animal shelter uh, for wild animals. And this young woman had cared for two little baby uh, girl lion cubs when they were really little and then been separated from them. And now this is like three years later and these lions are big. They're big giant. And she walks up to this gate and you see the lions walking around and they, they look at her. And all of a sudden, they come running at her. And you think, she's going to get eaten in like three seconds. And they jump up. And these giant girl lions hugged her. And they had their paws around. They also had her head in their mouth, which made me nervous. But they didn't hurt her. Because to those, those lions, in a very real sense, their God had returned. The one that sustained them. The representative of God on earth to them. This woman, as the image of God, had made what we might call the animal equivalent of the second coming. And these lions bounded to her. Now, of course, this week also, we know creation is broken. This week also, a whole group of monkeys on the other side of the world killed a woman by pushing her off of a building. And so creation is broken. It doesn't work right. So we've been created to have dominion over the earth, to rule the earth as the image of God, as the appointed representative of God, that when an animal sees you, he ought to see God. The central directive is all about the kingdom of God on earth. And in fact, 
in all of our messages in Genesis, the focus will always be on kingdom because that's where we start. So God has a central directive. The mankind will have dominion as his representative on earth, but in God's master plan to glorify all the attributes of God, all the aspects of his character, including grace and mercy and forgiveness, and yes, wrath and righteous judgment, he allowed sin to enter into the creation. Look with me at Genesis 3, and let's find out why you had a bad day. Genesis three fourteen. After the serpent, Satan in the form of a serpent has deceived both Adam and Eve. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So God cursed Satan. He cursed the serpent also, by the way, through which Satan worked. God cursed the woman. God cursed the man. And now we have death. We have the bearing of sinful children. But we also have a promise embedded in here. I find it very ironic in the plan of God that the first promise of Messiah is given to Satan, the one whom Messiah would defeat. The end of verse 15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that promise is of a coming savior to save us from sin. Satan's going to be crushed. Death will be crushed. Now this leads us to the second phrase in our propositional statement. God has a central directive through a specific pathway. Through a specific pathway. And what is this specific pathway? Well, we get to it almost immediately in Genesis to get the answer. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. You're familiar with this. We talk about it enough here. We get the first announcement of what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. God's covenant with Abram, whom he would later rename Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And from here on out, the Pentateuch and the Old Testament and the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all focused on God's dealing with Israel. That's the focus from here on out. In Genesis, we see the story of the family of Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and the miraculous ways God deals with them. And then Jacob, in turn, has 12 sons who, through the circumstances around his son Joseph in the last part of Genesis, all move with their families to Egypt. In Egypt, they become great in number to the tune of several million people from the 70 that they originally started with. And in 400 years, that is entirely possible. You can do the math. 
Then we have the account of the enslavement of the family of Jacob, which God told Abraham about all the way back in Genesis 15. He said that was going to happen. He even gave the time frame of 400 years. God has now set up his chosen people to have a desperate need for him, a desperate need to call upon him so that he'll have rights over them when he rescues them. And so God miraculously rescues his people from Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He officially forms them from a really, really large related family into a nation. And they make that transition at Mount Sinai. He gives them a constitution and a covenant known as the Ten Commandments. And there is a, there's a preamble to this constitution and covenant. Turn with me to Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, here we get the purpose statement, the preamble of the nation of Israel. Exodus 19, look with me at verse 4. And this is really the the, the crux of the the whole purpose of Israel. Exodus 19, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So this is, this is crucial to understanding the function, the purpose of Israel. And this can be considered the central purpose statement concerning God's election, his redemption, his work in that people. In verse 4 here, God rehearsed his, his punishment of Egypt, his mighty deliverance of Israel, and his bringing his people to himself into covenant fellowship. I brought you to myself. And so he challenges them to be obedient to his covenant requirements because he has done so much for them so that they could be, verse 5, his special possession and they could be, verse 6, a kingdom made up of priests. Now, the initial prerequisite to this covenant relationship is totally unconditional. Israel did not necessarily ask God to come rescue them. They weren't even necessarily that faithful to the Lord, but he used the Exodus to make them faithful. And so God fulfilled his part by rescuing them from Egypt of his own will, his own initiative, his own motivation. The conditional part comes that they are to succeed in accomplishing his purposes for them. They're to do their job. They are to be a priestly kingdom and a nation holy to the Lord. Now, some have argued that these three verses, they are the major theological focus of the Old Testament. And it certainly is the hinge on which the Old Testament door swings, and we understand that. But is this the major theological focus of the Old Testament? No, it's not. It's massively important, and it's the key to understanding the rest of the Old Testament. But it is a means to an end. It's a pathway to get back to the central directive. Do we have a kingdom on earth right now in which mankind, every single human being on earth, is accurately and perfectly and sinlessly acting as the image of God on earth? No. So Israel is the pathway to get back there. The key to understanding this is found in the statement that they are a kingdom of priests. Yes, Israel functions as the first theocratic kingdom on earth, the the first kingdom where God is the king. And yes, Israel will continue to figure very prominently in God's overarching plan, but they are first and foremost priests. 
And the fundamental role of the priesthood is that of mediation and intercession, that a priest stands between God and people, people who are in need of making contact with God, but they can't do it of their own ability. And so if Israel is a kingdom of priests meant to be given to the world, this means that they've been given the responsibility of mediating, of being an intercessor between holy God and all the nations of the earth. See also the Abrahamic covenant. I will make you into a great nations and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Israel and their covenant relationship with God, that, that can't be the focal point of God's plans. In other words, Israel isn't the ultimate objective. They are the means of achieving the larger ultimate objective that God and all the people of the earth might enjoy unbroken love and fellowship in a sinless earth in which mankind has dominion as the image of God. What was the job of Israel? One of my professors in seminary said very simply, the job of Israel was to make God big in the world. To make him big in the world. And they were to demonstrate what a set-apart nation that was holy unto the Lord looked like. They were also to bring the Messiah, who also is God, into the world through the line of Jacob and Judah and David. Now for now, they've failed in the first task of accurately representing God to the world. But God succeeded through them in bringing the Messiah to the world and through the failure of Israel to recognize him, Messiah was crucified to pay for the sins of all who would believe, thus defeating Satan per the promise of Genesis 3.15 to crush the serpent's head. And by the way, Israel did something else by the power of the Spirit of God which brought the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his Son into the world for all to hear Romans 3 verse 2 says that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Why do you have a Bible? It is because of Israel. It is because of Israel. Every book in our Bible except for Luke and Acts is written by a Jew and Luke and Acts was written under the supervision of a Jew. We have a Bible. We have, do you realize you know who Jesus is because of Israel? How could we ever be more thankful So God has a central directive that mankind would have dominion as his image through a specific pathway, Israel, to bring the knowledge of God and the Savior to the world. And and now I want to kind of drive these nails home. The final statement in this phrase here, and he confirms this central directive elsewhere in Scripture. He confirms this central directive elsewhere in Scripture. There are two major passages which really confirm the central idea, the central directive of dominion for us. It gives us a peek into what dominion and subduing entail, the idea of treading upon. The first one is in Genesis 2. If you would turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2, we'll see what Adam's role was in having dominion. Genesis 2, verse 15 Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam was placed in this beautiful orchard garden in the first chosen nation on earth, that is Eden, the nation of Eden, the capital nation of a brand new creation, and he was given two responsibilities. First, he was to work it, literally in Hebrew, to serve it. But the normal use of this verb in this context means to till it, to, to cultivate soil. In other words, there was good and wholesome work to be done to perpetuate the garden. This is prior to the fall of man into sin. 
and the cursing of creation to bring forth the thorns and the thistles. So the work itself was not part of the curse. What's the curse? The curse is working and toiling against a cursed creation that's trying to kill you until you ultimately die as naked as you came into the world. That was the curse. But Adam was, well, he was blessed to till the soil, to cultivate the ground in this most special place on earth, to, to work it. Second job he had was he was to keep it. He was to keep it. Now, it seems kind of re- repetitious here. What does it mean to keep it? It literally means to guard the Garden of Eden, that he was to be a guardian. So the question is, guard it from what? Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. Adam was to be the spiritual guardian. Why was the Garden of Eden the most special place on earth? Why was it the the holy sanctuary, the, the, the place where God met with mankind? Why is this so important? Because the Garden of Eden was essentially the first temple of God on earth. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. It's so important for us to check Scripture against Scripture and see the continuity that, that God is very practical. When he makes a design and it works, he repeats it over and over again. So what does this remind us of? The river flowing out of Eden, watering the garden there, it divides into four rivers. Well, we have a couple of things this reminds us of. Zechariah 14 describes the literal day, the actual 24-hour day that Christ returns. He'll return to Jerusalem. He'll defeat his enemies. And from Jerusalem, what is happening? Zechariah 14.8 says, On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And where in Jerusalem will these rivers be originating? Ezekiel 47.1 says, From the temple. Rivers of, the rivers of life flowing forth. And how about after this time in the final state when there will be now a new Jerusalem, a time yet to come? Revelation 22, 1 says that the river of the water of life will flow from the throne of God, watering, guess what? The tree of life, just like in the Garden of Eden. So it seems that the, the temple of God is to be characterized as one from which the rivers of life flow. And these are not metaphorical rivers. These are real rivers with real water. And so the Garden of Eden is the first temple of God on earth. And Adam is placed in the garden as the king, the priest, acting in the role of servant and guardian of the sanctuary, the holy place of God on earth. This dominion is lived out even further. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Genesis two nineteen. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was, no, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam was charged with naming the animals. Ostensibly, he gave the animals names which seemed to fit their character or characteristics. And I know he didn't use this word in English, but just as a, just an example, I think cow fits really well. I don't know. It just, just seems to. God has essentially transferred from himself to Adam 
this leadership function such that the animals were to be subservient to man as the image of God. And in this pristine, unfallen world, how did Adam get all the animals to come to him? They just did because he was the king and they knew it. And you see that even today, you can see this in your own house when the family dog sits at your feet and certainly flawed by the fallen creation they are. It's been said that both dogs and cats illustrate the state of humanity in the world. Dogs worship their master while cats think they are the master. That's the fallen nature of the world. And so we we get a glimpse here. This is what dominion looks like. Let me show you another key passage which gives us a glimpse into the central directive, the dominion of man on earth. Turn with me to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And this psalm is best understood in light of God's central directive in Scripture. It's very well known to you, very encouraging to us. So Psalm 8 is best grasped by knowing Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And I'll read the whole thing to you. I won't go into all of it point by point, but I just, I'll make some, a few highlights here. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me just highlight a few things pertinent to what we're talking about tonight. Verses 4 and 5. Very clear reference to the image of God. What is man? Well, the answer is he is the image of God. He is as the image of God. He's crowned with glory and honor. And this carries the idea of a bestowed position on someone. Now, you're probably aware that verse 5 is applied to Jesus Christ himself. In Hebrews chapter 2, in the midst of the writer's argument that for a time Christ took a position lower than the angels, but that God would exalt Christ at a later time, Verse 5 traditionally translates a a Hebrew word, the heavenly beings, the Septuagint Old Testament translation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament simply says the angels, and that's the version that's quoted in Hebrews 2, that he made him a little lower than the angels. So it's certainly perfectly acceptable to go in that direction. But the Hebrew word that's translated here, the heavenly beings, this is the second most common Hebrew word in the entire Old Testament. It's used about 2,700 times, and most often it's translated God. God in the plural form, which is sometimes just a way of showing that God is big. It can be translated heavenly beings, and the, and the Hebrews 2 reference bears this out. But the whole point of Psalm 8, in its own context, in its own, standing on its own, is not about mankind just being underneath angels. It's about mankind being just underneath God. 
In fact, Hebrews 1.14, speaking of angels, says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels of God are commissioned to serve for our sake. So in the ultimate end of all things, if we were to create a hierarchy, it would be God, humanity, and angels. Now, the, the puzzle here of using Elohim as angels in Hebrews 2 but perhaps considering Elohim as God in Psalm 8, this is a solvable problem, a solvable issue, which I won't take time to go through. But it's very interesting to me that one of the most foremost scholars in the area of image of God, Eugene Merrill, he wrote about verse 5 that he viewed God as a better translation. And he says this, quote, in view of the well-established fact that this psalm is a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 through 28. As God's image and viceroy, man himself is a king crowned with glory and honor. And this definition of this kingship is very clear in verses 6 and 7. Remember I told you that treading upon the definition of dominion and subdue would become important to us. What is it that verses 6 and 7 says will happen? You have put all things under his feet. It's the same thing. It is the dominion of mankind under the rule of God. To have dominion over what? Well, verses 7 and 8, the objects of creation. Here we have the sheep and the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea. Have you seen that list anywhere before? How about in Genesis chapter 1? It's the same list. It's just in a different order. Genesis says the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, living beasts, Psalm 8, the beasts, the birds, and the fish. And this psalm famously begins and ends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Is the name of the Lord majestic in all the earth today? I would argue no, it's not. Because the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the prince of darkness, he's ruling this world right now. So what is the connection? How is it that mankind as the one just under God, the appointed ruler of earth, by God, what's the connection between that and, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? I think it's very simple. That in a day when every human being on earth is accurately representing the image and the character and the attributes of God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? Only when mankind is fulfilling the central directive will that come true. So God has a central directive that mankind would have dominion as his image. This comes through a specific pathway. Israel is to acknowledge, Israel was to bring the knowledge of God and the Savior to the world and he confirms this central directive elsewhere in Scripture. I want to finish our time looking at the theological center of the Pentateuch and I want to simply give you four guarantees that what God started, the creation of all things to build a kingdom on earth, which mankind represents in him, that what he started, he will finish. Now, I'm going to call these guarantees prophecy, pattern, pledge, and proof. Prophecy, pattern, pledge, and proof. The first guarantee, prophecy. Daniel 7 predicts the coming kingdom made up of the nations of, of the earth. These kingdoms will be loyal to God. They will be obedient to God. They will give allegiance to God. But listen to the Genesis 128 language here of rule and dominion. Daniel 9, 27. 
and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to. Now, what do we expect here? We expect God or Christ, right? It's not what it says. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is high lofty language for humanity. The first guarantee is prophecy. The second guarantee I'll call pattern. Pattern. This is going to take me a moment to unravel this for you. Here's the pattern that God has set forth. God has a central directive that mankind will have dominion as his image through a specific pathway that is Israel to bring the knowledge of God and the Savior to the world. Well, we're in the church age currently. The gospel of Christ was brought to us by whom? By Israel. See also the book of Acts. But will the Lord continue that pattern? Now, currently, Israel as a nation is apostate. There are saved Jews who exist as part of the church, but there is no saved national Israel which follows her true king. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, Christ will take his church away at the same time that he resurrects the saints. Then will begin a time of tribulation, a time of Jacob's distress, according to Jeremiah 30, in which Antichrist will begin persecuting the Jews terribly. But near the end of this time, Zechariah 12.10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This is the repentance of a nation who looks on Christ the very next chapter, the ver- first verse, Zechariah 13, 1, on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And so the spiritual lives of many, many Jews, according to Zechariah, a third of all living Jews on earth will be saved. And as part of this, Revelation 7 says that there will be 144,000 specific Jews that are set apart. They are called the sons of Israel. And and we even have the tribes from which they, they come listed for us. And according to Revelation 14, they're a very unique a group set apart for their service to Christ. They remind us very much of an Old Testament Nazarite. They're all single. They're all dedicated to Christ's service alone. 144,000 saved Jews. And on the earth are people who desperately need to hear the gospel. The church has been taken and now God has raised up these 144,000 Jews. And what do you think the result is? Well, Revelation tells us, Revelation 7 tells us what happens as a result immediately after God raises up and seals and protects these 144,000. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, once again, God will use Israel to bring the message of the gospel to the world. He stays with his pattern. Prophecy, pattern, let me give you another kind of guarantee here we'll call it pledge pledge a warranty if you will that mankind will rule on earth per god's plan when christ returns to rescue his people 
Zechariah 14, 9 says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. What is the pledge that the central directive of mankind ruling the earth will come true? That mankind will rule as God's earthly representative? Well, God's going to guarantee this by sending a man who is also God to rule in his stead, to rule on his behalf, to fulfill that central directive perfectly and eternally. That's why we can say with confidence that we not only will rule and reign under Christ, but we rule and reign with him because he's fulfilling the same directive. One more guarantee, prophecy, pattern, pledge. Last one I'll just call proof. Proof. The first decree God made about what mankind is to do on the earth to have dominion and to subdue. The last decree, what do you think it is? The last description in all of the Bible that we get about what redeemed mankind is doing on the earth after the thousand-year reign of Christ, after the great white throne judgment, after the, the destruction and the remaking of the new heavens and the new earth, what does the Bible say in its final statement about you and about me? Revelation 22.5, the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The kingdom headed by the king of kings filled with the kings and the queens of the earth, all who have trusted Christ as their savior. The theological center of the Pentateuch is God's intention to create the universe and the earth upon which to place the pinnacle of his creation that is you and mankind to rule as his image and to get us there. He would give us Israel through whom the Savior Jesus would come. And so the rest of the Pentateuch, the rest of the Old Testament concerns itself with Israel because she is the pathway to fulfilling that decree of God for all time. And because this is the decree of God for all who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what some of your royal titles are given in Scripture? You are called fellow heirs with Christ. Romans eight seventeen, That all that he has will be yours. You ever dream of getting that phone call to find out that you're actually slightly related to Bill Gates and he has something for you in his will? Well, dream on because that's actually going to happen. You're a fellow heir, not with some rich guy. You're a fellow heir with the man, God, who created everything. You're called brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ, blood relations with Jesus. In our culture, we don't make that as big of a deal. In Jesus' day, that was everything. You could have been gone for 50 years and you can show up at somebody's doorstep and you can say, I'm your 14th cousin 19 times removed on your mother's grandmother's side. And they say, welcome home. To be a blood relative of Jesus Christ, not a 19th cousin, but a brother and a sister. You're called the saints of God, the set apart ones, the holy ones. You know me and I know you and I don't think any of us want to call each other holy. But you're called the holy ones of God, the saints. You're called the children of God, the children of God. I couldn't get into the White House if my life depended on it. I can't get within a block of the White House. But if I was the president's kid, I can walk right in. You are the children of God. You have full and free access 
you're called those who are adopted of God. That's even better because you were chosen. You were chosen to be that child. And I like this one. You were called a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are royalty in the kingdom of God. And so it's no surprise to us that Jesus invites the one who would believe on him. He says, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is extremely consistent with the central directive, is it not? The invitation to salvation is an invitation to be part of a kingdom that if you know Christ, you will be part of, and I can't wrap my mind around this, 10 billion years from now, you'll still be a part of that kingdom. Enjoying the fellowship and the unity of the saints, enjoying what it means to be a king and a queen and a prince and a princess in the perfect kingdom of God. Somebody asks you what the Bible is about, that's it. That is it. And so it's our pleasure to apply this. I have a simple application. If you know Christ, be thrilled about your future. If you don't, get on board. It's really that simple. Repent of your sins and humble yourself before him so that you too can be a king or a queen in the kingdom of God. That is our central direct. That is the theological center of the Pentateuch and of the Bible. Our Father, we thank you for this time tonight. And of course, our desire is for your word to make a difference in our lives, to make us more and more like Christ. And so we pray that would be the case. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us even now to begin to act out and live out those titles that you have so graciously given to us as your children, as your chosen ones, as your adopted ones. We pray, Lord, that the sanctification that we enjoy uh, because of Christ would continue on in our lives until we all meet together before the throne. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.